you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you're a guest with us today, thankful that you are here, seat in front of you, unless you're in the balcony, um, there is a Bible, and that is our gift to you. We are people that have been graced with the words of God, and we want you to have them So if you would, take that Bible that's in front of you and turn to one of the last letters towards the back of that Bible, 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 4 today. Beloved, there's a danger in coming to hear the Word week in and week out. The danger is that we come and we begin to be enamored with the truth of God's Word, but we actually never come to live under the authority of God's Word. If we think about, to illustrate that point, all of the authors of the Old Testament uh, and what they wrote of, if we think about Moses and Nehemiah and Ezra and David and Solomon and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, what we will find are men standing up to speak on behalf of God and under the inspiration of God, but what do we find often in the nation, in the people of God, at their speaking? Is it faithfulness? Is it diligence to live under the Word of God? Is it, is it a hunger for the Word of God? Or is it an absolute abject rebellion in the face of God? I would tell you that it's the latter. And if we look all throughout church history, we will find men who claim to speak for God defecting in different ways and rebelling. It it brings us to a reality that we have to accept that the Word has been preserved not through human effort, but through God's kindness. It is because God is kind that we have His Word in our hands this morning. How many of us have stopped throughout this week just to say thank you for that one joy and blessing? Not many of us. I can, as I was thinking about this this week, it, it, it occurred to me how thankless I have been in my own walk with the Lord uh, about His Word. What we also have to understand is that if the Spirit is not at work in our lives, we won't heed His Word. The Christian faith isn't something we merely decide to do in our own strength. Uh, We can come to His Word, we can have it in our hands, we can know all of the grammar, we can understand all of the theology, but until the Spirit of Almighty God applies the Word to our hearts, it's nothing to us. So we should be thankful not only for the Word, but for the work of the Spirit. I think it's interesting to note what Augustine said of all of these Old Testament authors that I just spoke of. You know what he called them? He called them the bookmen of the church. And I don't think he was being derogatory, but what he was pointing at is what I've already illustrated, and that is that all of these, man, these men were brought up by God to speak God's words to God's people, and yet we find that many people inside the nation throughout the Old Testament were not actually heeding the words that God had given to them. They merely turned out to be the ones who wrote the books that we benefit from in the church today. And there's no greater illustration of this reality than what we see when Christ comes to His own people. They had been given the oracles of God. They had been given the Word of God. They had set under its reading. They had set under its teaching. And yet, even the leaders 
had so profaned the Word as to not live under the authority of God that when Christ Himself appeared, did the people receive Him? Well, John has a word on that. In John chapter 1, he says, He came to His own. His own people didn't receive Him. Friends, we are not believers this morning because we are good or because we made right decisions. We are believers in Christ this morning because we have a gracious God. And John goes on to say, but all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Glory. That should cause us to tremble. It should also cause us every week when we come into this place to have a reverence not for the preacher, not for religious things, but a reverence for God Himself and for His Word. It should cause us to come to verse 12, which we are at this morning in 1 John chapter 4, and not merely just to gloss over it. Too often we come to words that we think we understand their meaning and we just kind of skip over them and take them for granted. Now, my fear is what we will do with this text and what, what many have done with this text is to turn it into some sort of moralism. A, a way to whip people over the heads that we just don't love each other well enough in the body. And I certainly believe that to an extent that is true and that this text is is it meant as a test and as an exhortation, but it is not a test and it is not an exhortation that we can live up to in our own strength by our own determination. So we must come under the authority, under the weight, under the grandeur of these words. With that in mind, would you stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word? John writing here under the inspiration of the one that gives us breath to worship and to speak and to live today. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that we, He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought love one another. And verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected. In us, This is God's inerrant Word to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence marveling. We come into Your presence thankful. We come into Your presence acknowledging the reality that we hated Your name and were at enmity with You, a lot of us. But You and Your grace and Your kindness and Your mercy have bestowed upon us who believe the great gift of loving You, loving Your Word, and submitting our lives not to the religious edicts of men, but to the glories of Christ. Might it ever be so. Might we love one another more for having understood how You have loved us. In Christ's name, 
Amen. You may be seated. See, there's a problem that we face in every generation, and that is that we live our lives not in light of the Word, but in light of all of the clamoring of the generation in which we live, seeking to find answers to the struggles that we face in the, in the uh, mindset of, of the modern uh, view more than in what God has delivered once for all to the saints. And, and, and the the reality is, when we come to the Word, and when we come to 1 John in particular, the great encouragement we have is that we know why he is writing. He's writing for our joy. John understands that being a follower of Christ in this world is not going to be an easy thing. And that there are many things that will seek to tear your heart away from the joy that you have only in fellowship with God apart from any of your own effort. John understands that your joy can't be rooted in religious performance, in your ability to love, in your ability to live out the commands of God. John understands that your joy only comes in having fellowship with the Father and with His Son and through the apostolic witness, through the Word of God, understanding God, how He has revealed Himself through His prophets and Apostles, we must come to verses like this, like verse 12, and understand that many have misinterpreted, misquoted verse 12. We must let the chatter of the world fade away. And instead of leaning into what the world has to say, to how the church should love, which I'm afraid is, the, is, is what most individuals even inside the body are listening to. What, is, what does the world say about love? Instead of doing that, we should come to verses like verse 12, and we should ask questions. You know, God's Word is able to handle our reverent questions. God's Word is up to the task of laying us low. You know, there have been many men, and just anecdotally, throughout history, who as the Gospel has been preached in their particular political kingdom, they have sought to squelch the working of God, and so they have, they have put out edicts that, that all Bibles, all of the Scriptures would be burned and done away with. Do you know what still remains today? The Word of God. All of those men are dead. And do you remember one of their names? No. God's Word is up to the challenge of taking on our questions. So we must come and ask, why is He saying this? Why why is He saying no one has ever seen God? And why does He say it that way? And why does He say it in this particular place? We must be reminded that not one word of Scripture is spoken haphazardly. There's always a reason why there is something written, and there's always a reason why it's written in the context in which it is 
written. So the question is, why does John suddenly, in the midst of this argument, this grand dialogue about loving the body well, why does he come and say, no man hath seen God at any time? What's the connection? What does it mean? What is it that suddenly, at this point, made him burst with extraordinary, uh, with this extraordinary statement? Well, why here? What does this mean? Well, there are many different views the two most predominant views are one that following from verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And then he goes on to say, No man hath seen God at any time. In other words, he's saying the only way in which we can love God is by loving one another. We can't see God, but we see one another. And therefore, the only way to love God is to love one another. That view, I'm afraid, in the lack of clarity and even maybe some of my own preaching, is permeated the church today. That the only way we can love God concretely and evidently is by loving our neighbor. And what that does is it puts loving our neighbor in the primary position. That's one view. The other view is our love ought to be like the love of God itself. And that the love of God, as John has just reminded us, is something which manifests itself in the concrete, in the actual. God is love, John says. And God has manifest His love in that He sent His only begotten Son to the world that we might live through Him. Love isn't something just sentimental or mystical or feeling driven. And all of that is true. But the misinterpretation of this text would be to take that reality, and that is being said here, Love is something that has been done in the concrete. God has done something. But the misapplication would be to come, and this is, this is uh, often done in the preaching of this text, and say, now you must do something. That God would love you. You must do something in your day. Because nobody has ever seen God. Therefore, it is up to you and the way that you love. I've heard pastors time and time again say that the lost and dying world will go to hell if we don't get our act together and love the way we ought to. Can I tell you something this morning? We can love the way that we ought to, but without the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of men and women, boys and girls, without the Word of God, our perfect attempts at love will send people straight to hell. Because it is only God who can open blinded eyes. It is not that you must do something so that others might be saved. Now, there's an argument that I know rises up immediately there, but aren't we given all of these imperatives? Yes. Those are merely the working of God in you. And you wouldn't obey and be a witness and you wouldn't love and you wouldn't do what God is calling you to do to, as an instrument of His grace had He not first opened your blinded eyes. So both of these statements must be summarily dismissed. And the question is, well, why? Aren't we being exhorted here to love one another in the body in a concrete way? Isn't this a test to, to ask us if we truly are in Christ that we will in fact love one another in concrete ways? And, and isn't it also an exhortation to do that? Aren't you robbing the text to take away both this idea that the only way to love God is to love one another and that we must do something? Well, friends, there is, 
a truthiness to the reality that yes, we are called to love one another. We are exhorted to that end in this text and we are given this as a test of whether or not we are really in the faith. But be careful that you don't disconnect those things from what God is actually doing, that He is the one as the foundation of all of those things, and begin to believe that you can love God in your own strength and that you can do something redemptive in your own ability. I must dismiss these ideas mainly because of what is said in verse 19. And it's succinct and clear. We love because why? He first loved us. John does not say that we cannot love God except through loving our brethren. That's not his argument. Nor does he say that we can only love God by means of loving our brethren. Rather, he tells us that we are to love God and that we can love God and that we should love God. Do you remember what is said in Matthew chapter 22 about the first and great commandment? That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And secondly, secondly, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are never to put as a priority the love of neighbor before the love of God. We are always called to love God first. So if we are going to summarily dismiss those two interpretations, and we should, What is our explanation of this sudden introduction of this statement at this point? Why is John is going about telling us that we let us love one another for God is uh, for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and then he amplifies that statement in verses 9 through 11 and then he comes here and just like out of nowhere he says no one has seen God. Why? Why here? Well, I believe it is because, not alone in this, because John is actually introducing a new theme here. And it's the theme of assurance of our salvation. And it is a theme that is ultimately going to weave its way all throughout the remainder of this chapter. What John is doing is he is going back to verse number 8, the tail end of, of what he has said. If we take this in its context... Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then there's this parenthetical in verses 9 through 11, and then he continues, no one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And what we find in verses 9 through 11 are not disconnected from the text. What they are is really an amplification of the statement, God is love. This declaration that our God doesn't love at particular points, not that our God is loving in response to us, but that our God in His attribute, in His character, in who He is, is love. And then verses 9 through 11 spell out the amplification pointing us in the direction of the incarnation, the coming of His Son into the world to redeem us that we might live. That is what is happening there in 9 and 11. And so John comes back in verse 12 and he points out this new theme of assurance of our salvation. What we have learned this far 
if we set aside verses 9 through 11 for just a moment in verse uh, 7 is that love of the brothers, love of the body is ultimately the regulating theme of this passage. That we are to love one another in the body of Christ. And why is this important? John has answered that in verse 11. Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. It is a manifestation of the Spirit of God at work in us. That He has actually regenerated and redeemed us. And that if we love the body, it testifies to the reality that we know God. And so he says in verse 11, if God has loved us in this way, in the incarnation, we ought also to love one another. But, but then John says, it's not only that, that's important, but it's also important that you love the brothers from the standpoint of your own assurance, that you would actually know. Remember, the whole, the whole point of this letter is that we would have joy in knowing that we have fellowship with God. And what John is leaning into you this morning and saying is not that you must love others because they are the only ones that are seen. It's not him saying you must love others in concrete actions. It's not him saying you must earn your salvation so that then God loves you. He is saying it is important that you love the body because when you are struggling with assurance of your salvation, that is in fact the bedrock of assurance. That is what will tell you in your own life that you belong to Him. He goes back to his main argument that will continue again until verse 1 of chapter 5. And John has poetically wound around the, the reality of the incarnation as the ground of our loving one another, that it is ultimately Christ at work. It is His work that leads to our loving. And then he comes back and he leans in. No one has seen God. Loving our church is important because love is from God, because those who love are born of God, and because those who genuinely love the church of God know God. Those are interesting things to think about. The most important one, the one that I think John is hanging on, is the last. That loving our church is important because it evidences that we know God. It bears witness that there is a knowledge of God in us. That we actually have fellowship. That there is an assurance of our salvation. Look back at verse one or verse 3 of chapter 1 with me. Let's start at verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. It's talking about Christ. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3. That which we have seen, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, 
Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If you really want fellowship with God, you must love one another. Not just in word, but in action. If you really have joy in the fellowship of the the saints, you are ultimately manifesting that you have fellowship with God. The two cannot be disconnected. The, the mindset that says, well, I want to be a Christian and I want to love Jesus with everything that I have, but I just don't want to have anything to do with the church. That is an antithetical view when it comes to, to Scripture. We can't just love Jesus because if we actually love Jesus, as it turns out, we will love the body of Christ. I love that the body is a vital thing to our knowledge of God. So how can we arrive at this true knowledge of God? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's what we've learned thus far. But what kind of love is this? What kind of knowledge is this? How can we be sure that we actually know God? How can we be sure when we are chastened with accusations that we are assured that we do in fact know God? How can we assuage our doubts and fear? That's the real question that verse 12 lays before us in statement form. You remember Thomas after Jesus in John chapter 14. It's a fantastic chapter. And I encourage you this afternoon to read just John 14. But you remember Thomas after Jesus uh, said he was going to see the Father and he's going to build many mansions. Do you remember Thomas, what he said? Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? You tell us of these mansions and of the Father and you're going to be with the Father and that you have prepared a place for us, but we're different from you. We are mere dust. We're mortal. We don't understand what it is that you're actually in concrete fashion talking about and we want to know what that means. We, we want not just a mere head knowledge. Jesus said He's going to be with the Father. And Jesus said He's preparing many places for us or mansions for us, rooms for us. Uh, not just a, an, an ascent to the knowledge. We want the kind of fiducia knowledge, the kind of resting in what He's talking about. Thomas is a gift to us that he asked this question. We don't know and we want to know. Some of you might think, well, Philip would be better, but turns out in the preceding verses, he's no better. Philip was much the same. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Show us the Lord, the Father, and we, this will be enough. We want to know the Father as you know the Father. It's the kind of craving and longing that is in the hearts and minds of all of us who are really concerned with the things of God. The longing to know God for certain. To have assurance. We all have this craving to know. Not just knowing again about something, but knowing that our relationship is certain. Friends, the kind of fellowship, the kind of joy that John is talking about is not a fickle, uh, fleeting joy. It's not a fickle, fleeting Fellowship, it is something certain that we can know. Friends, don't we live in an uncertain world? 
Nothing is for sure. Nothing lasts. Nothing is beyond being shaken or taken away. And so innate in all of us is this desire for something that is certain and sure. So how can we be certain that we know the Lord? How can we be assured? Well, John in verse 12 of chapter 4 takes up the answering of this question. So let's look at this verse. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So the first thing that He answers us with in the question of our our assurance of our salvation and our knowing God is in the negative. Our assurance is not based on a visual seeing of God. We must not hold on desiring to have a vision or apparition or or hearing the audible voice of God. We live in a day and age, beloved, where so much of that kind of thinking is peddled in the church. God gave me a vision. God gave me a dream. I saw... Friends, every one of those things falls short of the biblical standard of assurance. No one has seen God. I know I've brought it up to you before, and and the brother, the the man, I don't know whether he's in Christ or not. And I don't make that judgment. The, The individual, I think his name's Don Piper, that wrote 90 Minutes in Heaven, doesn't actually claim to have seen God, but everything he writes is in that direction. And here's the sad reality. If that were true, it still falls lower than the standard with which we are given here in the text of our assurance. It's not better in being assured that we actually belong to Christ. It's lower than that. Do you see how the church is so subtly duped into believing things that fall below what God has given us? God has given us a beautiful inheritance, a wonderful uh, reality. Now, here's what I want to be careful and that you don't hear me. I do believe that the Lord impresses upon our hearts um, different things in our lives. And I do believe that we can in a unique way... um, feel certain about God's leading and moving in different areas of our life. I'm not talking about guidance and I'm not talking about our subjective walk with the Lord. I'm talking about the kind of faith that says I can be assured that I am a believer because I have had a vision or because I have had uh, an experience of hearing the voice of God. That is not the biblical standard with which John gives us this morning. In fact, he echoes, John echoes in verse 18 of chapter 1 of his gospel, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. He has made Him known. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen now immediately by leaning into this negative that we can't have assurance because of visions because of dreams because of audible voices someone's going to say well what about the theophanies in the old testament 
What about the interaction with Abraham and Lot? And what of that in Moses? Uh, Theophanies are those places in the Old Testament where God appeared. The Bible often says the angel of the Lord appeared in human form, veiled for a limited purpose in communicating something to the individual with which he is interacting. But if we remember the interaction primarily that I'm going to lead in with uh, in the Old Testament sense, of between God and Moses, and Moses says, I want to... Isn't it interesting that that um, Thomas and Philip both, they want, to, they want to know, they want this certainty, we want to see the Father, Philip says. Uh, uh, we don't know where you're going, Thomas says. Moses says, I want to behold your glory, let me see your glory. Do you remember that? And in Exodus chapter 33... John says, I will pass before you. I will appear unto you. Yet, ultimately, he says, I'm not going to let you see my glory. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will merely pass by. So we can say that what John is saying is still true. That seeing God in the fullness of His glory, no man has ever seen. Now if we think about that, we're going to come back to the New Testament, we're going to say, yeah, but what about Christ? And this is a very difficult, mysterious thing to communicate. John chapter 14, verse 9, immediately as, as, as Philip has says, said, uh, Show us the Father. Jesus responds, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Now what Jesus isn't saying there is that you have seen the fullest display of of God's glory in the sense of the Father. When we're looking at the Son, we're actually looking at the Son, not the Father. And so in that sense, we've not seen the Father. But what Jesus is saying is that in essence, they are one and the same. Is that the Father? No, that's the Son. But the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the only way in which we can see the Father so far is that we have seen the Son. Does all of that level in your brain? Mine neither. But what we know for sure is that no one has beheld the fullness of the glory of God at any time. I don't want to distract from anything of Christ. He, he is truly human and truly God at the same time. And so it's a wonderful, miraculous gift. But yet, we are told here that no one has seen, in verse 12, God. What we're instructed with here is don't strive after visions of God. You don't have to strive after them if you're actually in Christ. You know why? Remember what promise was given in uh, the Sermon on the Mount during the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are, those, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There will be a day, beloved, when we will behold the glory of Christ and, and the Father and we will worship Him for all that is due Him. That day is coming. 
And we can be assured that we are going to be part of His kingdom. We can have assurance succinctly. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. You see, in every generation there are these individuals that where they get their assurance has to come from something physical. It has to come from something tangible. It has to come because God gave them a big bank account or, or did this miracle or did that or appeared to them or spoke to them directly or all of those things. And what Paul is saying and what John is saying and what, uh, what Philip is saying is that ultimately we don't need to rest on those things. There's something greater even yet to assure our hearts of our salvation. It's not a vision of God. Friends, it's something altogether more marvelous. It's the indwelling of the person of God. I can have an individual rant and rave and talk for hours about seeing a vision of God and seeing the face of God and hearing God's voice and all of those things. But that does not equate, John says, to the indwelling power of the Spirit of Almighty God, which is a greater and surer foundation for the assurance of our souls. Now I think we could all just lay down flat-faced today and continue to worship and that would be the right response to this text that we who are sinful who rebel against God are actually indwelt by the third member of the Trinity by the Spirit of God Himself. What a joy that is. How astounding that has to be to our mind. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us. In verse 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. That's a great verse. We're going to get there. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. That's the ground of our assurance. So we have to come to this, these verses and not gloss over them. Not act like the mere bookmen of the Old Testament just hearing the words of God, not allowing them to penetrate our heart. But we must hear the promises of God that if we love the body of Christ, that is a, an evidence that we are actually indwelt by the Spirit Himself. What joy that should bring into our lives. We must, like Moses, take off our shoes, shut our mouth, and realize that when we hear this declaration that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we are on holy ground. We are here not talking about, beloved, hear these words, listen to this. This is not merely written to the first century church that heard them 2,000 years ago. Hear these words to you. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another... God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. These words belong to you, beloved. God dwells in you as the ground of the assurance of salvation. If we love one another, God, the One who spoke everything into existence, God, the One who made man in His image, God, the One who promised and then sent His Son in spite of all of our rebellion, God, the One who rules over all things, God, the One who is giving us breath even this moment, that God dwells within us. 
And a mere vision would do better than that? In some strange manner. And friends, if you want me to explain the fullness of what this means, you're going to have to cancel your lunch plans for the next hundred years. In some strange manner, God, the eternal God who is spirit, enters into our lives, moves in our lives, deals with us in our lives, organizes our lives, tears down things in our lives such that we are able to love the body of Christ. I can't understand that fully, someone will say. Well, let me remind you of verses 9-11 through 11, where John has just explained the sending of the Son into the world, the incarnation, as the seal, the evidence, the proof of God's love towards you. Here in the manger in Bethlehem is... The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, born in human flesh, but still fully divine. We have the picture there of the Trinity and the incarnation. And my question to you is, can you understand all of that? No. But you can believe it. We get to believe things that our minds cannot hold. Isn't that a joy? And what we can know is that the God of the heavens, when He actually saves someone and when He actually indwells someone, that ultimately their life will be a life manifesting love particularly and predominantly to the body of Christ. That is the evidence at which John points us this morning. Let's put it like this. If I love the brethren... If I have assurance of God, I can have assurance of, of God having redeemed, redeemed me. The very fact that I love the body of Christ, that I'm capable of loving. Listen, y'all, the, the reality that Libby can love Brian, that is an evidence of God at work in our age. The, the fact that Sarah loves me and then we take that in, into the rest of, of the body. The reality that we come in here and you know what unites us is not our common heritage uh, as far as our ancestry. It's not because we all have the same viewpoints on everything in our culture. It's not because we all like the same style of music. It is because the same God that rules over everything, that's sovereign over everything, indwells us by His Spirit. That the One who sent His Son into the world has sent His Spirit into our hearts. And that gives us great assurance that we belong to Him. Remember what was said in chapter 3, verses 11-15, through 15, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one who murdered his brother. And, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What he is saying, what John is saying, is we love the body not because we are moral people. We love the body because God loves us. Because love is from God. Because God made us new in Christ through the work of His Spirit. And because 
Um, because ultimately, we know God. That's why we love. We love as a response to what Christ has done for us. We love in response to the Spirit coming into our lives, not as a means to getting to the Son, not as a means to getting to the Spirit. So we ask the question again, how can I know that God is and that God loves me and that God is love? We can know those things if we actually, genuinely, in our heart of hearts, love the body. Now again, we are freed from the, the, the foolish, sentimental conceptions that we must like everyone in the body of Christ. There may be things that we struggle with greatly throughout our lives inside the body of Christ, but we have this ability to love the body because of what Christ has done for us because we have been given a new nature because we look at all of the body of Christ and whether it's just Life Point Baptist Church or more broadly than that the universal church church or the historical church we love the bride of Christ we are enamored with what God has done in taking people from death and bringing them to a saving knowledge of his son you see assurance is not based on visions Assurance is based on the indwelling of the Spirit that leads us to love one another. Now John goes on one step further. And he says, not only do we not need to depend on visions because we are indwelled by the Spirit of God which leads us to love the body, but His love is perfected in us. Friends, you'll never be more thankful for a perfect passive verb than you are in this verse. What this verse tells us, that His love is perfected in us. It does not mean that His love is perfected as we endeavor to love the way that God wants us to love because we can only see our neighbor. It doesn't say that. It is a, a perfect passive verb which tells us the perfect, something that has been done in the past but has ongoing implication, and passive, that it's something that happens to us, not because of us. His love is not perfected in us because we try so hard, because we give so much. His love is perfected in us because of what He has written in verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Was it made manifest because we are good Christians who love well? It was made manifest among us because, because God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sin. What we are taught in this particular passage is that God's love is yet permeating the church. The, the, the redeeming work of Christ that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And here's one of the other realities. Do you know why we don't have to hold on to visions and hearing God? Because we can see in the pages of Scripture what God has done to demonstrate His love. We have the concrete acts of the incarnation the atonement, and the resurrection. We can lean into those realities. And here's the glorious thing about those realities. Someone could say, what difference does that make? Those things are 2,000 years off. What John is saying is that those actions are still reverberating in you today. 
as you love one another in the body of Christ. They are still having their effect as you are transformed into the likeness of Christ and as, as, as you see your neighbor, your brother, sister in Christ, not merely for who they are in the flesh, but for who Christ is making them to be. And so the particular type of love that is found uniquely in the body is one that only comes through the meritorious works of Christ, not by human effort. As it turns out, not only is our salvation by grace, so is our love for one another. So see, it's not so much about the action. It's much more than that. It's about a change of heart. We don't love because we all again have the same background. We love because He first loved us. And we love because we are indwelt by the Spirit. And the only reason that we can have assurance that we are born again is because He has loved us so well that then we are free not to try to prove something, but we are free to rest in what Christ has already done and in the process of that, genuinely show Christ-like love one to another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's given us a greater proof that the Spirit dwells in us and that the works of Christ are still permeating the church today. He deserves glory for that. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you today acknowledging that we ought love one another too, that we have it well, and that we need so much more wisdom to know how to love one another in your direction for your glory, not merely for our own sentimental ends. So Father, would you give us that wisdom? Would you give us in this body a strengthening of our love for one another through the work of your Spirit and through our adoration of the redemptive works that you did of old? Father, would you help us to be men and women who love you first and primarily, who love Your Word, who love Your commandments, who seek to honor You with our lives. Would You give us the joy of loving one another for the rest of our lives in a way that would bring You glory. In Christ's name.